Hello. Hey, John. How are you doing this week? How's everything going? Hi, Dan. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. How's it up there in Seattle? Oh, well, it's a it's a beautiful day here in yeah. Paradise, but it's uh, but I'm having a rough go of it. Oh, no. Why? Uh, just the, the stuff's just piling up. Mm. It's just piling up. And mm. um, the last couple of mornings I've woken up. It's a, it's kind of a new experience for me. I wake up without very much sleep, you know, just kind of come, come awake. Yeah. And immediately my head is just filled with, with, uh, bad thoughts. Mm. And then I, I, you know, I like to sleep. So I roll back over. Yeah. I think I'm just going to go back to sleep, but it's just like, it's just like hail on a roof level of bad thoughts and uh and then i toss and turn yeah and there's moments of respite where i can kind of banish the bad th- i mean it's an anxiety attack but it's like the first thing i've experienced both both this morning and yesterday and it's just like ugh, hmm. uh really de- debilitating and not you know if you can't if you can't take refuge in sleep, what what you know? What can you do anyway? Well, I don't know. I've never had refuge in sleep. Mm. I've uh, had insomnia my entire life, going back to single digit ages. Ugh. And there's even stories that my mom has told me how I refused to nap or couldn't nap, I should say, when I was two years old. She said the last nap that I ever took was I was two. And I remember in school when we would have nap time, I would just lay there. I never slept there. I never, I've never fallen asleep accidentally in my life. I've never fallen asleep in a public place in my life. Wow. Um, I've never slept on a plane. I've never slept in any kind of moving or stationary vehicle except one time when I was on a road trip with my college girl, one of my college girlfriends. Uh, we were driving from Central Florida to Tennessee. And on the way back, after camping for three or four nights uh, and not sleeping at all, um, I was able to sleep for an hour and a half in the parked car in the rest stop. Uh, but we had we also got scabies. Ooh, that that'll fun. make it hard to sleep. Yeah. Scabies, but itchy. So I don't. I for anyone who talks about you know sleeping and 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 sleep being a refuge and loving to sleep. I'm just, it couldn't be, we're worlds apart. I've never oh. had the, I've never had that. And those people, I'm not saying you, uh, cause I know you have sleep stuff, but for those people who just go to bed every night and wake up in the morning, feeling refreshed, um, we have nothing in common <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they don't even understand, you know, and then they'll give you advice. Like, you ever tried sleeping on your back? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. that'll do it. You ever just try to sleep on your back? Then you'll sleep all night. You'll sleep great. Like, oh, you know, I, I never thought, I never tried. No, 49 years, I never tr- thought of that. Wow, what else should I try? How should I, you know, tell me, tell me how to make a million bucks while you're at it. So, no, I, I, I don't know what that's like, but I definitely know it, it, what you just described to me, I would just call a typical morning. Hmm. Just mm. <laughs> typical morning. Mm. So, hopefully, it goes back to your normal soon. Yeah. Yeah, I would like that. If I mean, it, wake, if the idea back. of waking up without having a deep 
existential crisis and filled with dread. That would that would be an atypical morning. What do you do? Uh, you you just get out of bed and get moving, and yeah, you just say, "Screw this! I'm getting up." Right. There's no reason to lay here and do this. Right. It's not going to be productive. It's not going to. You're not going to get anywhere with this. It's just going to feel worse. So you just get up and start doing stuff. Maybe that's the lesson. People Maybe. always say, Dan, you're always so productive in the mornings. You wake up so early. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Isn't it great? It's great. So you're you're <laughs> driven out of bed by by demons every morning. Existential demons, yeah. Every pretty much every day, yeah. Wow. I mean, I can't. You know, sometimes you get like a like a blessing where mm-hmm. you get to sleep more than six hours. Mm-hmm. and uh, maybe even seven, and you wake up and you're like, wow, this is what it feels like to be God. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I want to, you know, end everything. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you well, just get, maybe- you get used to it. If it keeps happening, you just get used to it until eventually it's just normal. And you kind of, one of the, my big takeaways from being a, being a practice practitioner of uh, Vipassana or Buddhist meditation or what, what is now called mindfulness meditation and has apps associated with it. I wonder how the Buddha would have felt about the apps. I think he would have liked them, but Buddha, Buddha was against ball games. Well, but I, you know, you, uh, Oh, you're talking about meditation apps. Yeah. yeah. One of my biggest takeaways uh, from, from that practice that I've had is understanding that sometimes you just feel a certain way and you don't have to get, you don't have to have what, you know, I talked to Merlin about the concept of the second arrow where the Buddhist story is that, um, you know, the Buddha is talking about enlightenment and being enlightened and having the choice. You're still going to, even if you're enlightened, you still feel pain, but it's how you react to the pain uh, that is different. And, what he was saying is that a lot of us have, if you got shot with an arrow, that's going to hurt, right? Then it's going to hurt bad. But then there's also the concept of what he called the second arrow, which is, yeah, you got shot with an arrow and it hurts, but then you start, you start this dialogue in your head of, why did I get shot with the arrow? I wish I hadn't gotten shot with an arrow. I, I, what if I hadn't have been there? What if I'd done something different, et cetera? And what you're actually doing is kind of, you're shooting yourself with a second arrow by creating all this extra suffering around the first arrows, pain and discomfort. Mm. And we do that to ourselves a lot when you're there in bed and you're not able to, you know, fall back to sleep or whatever. You're like, Oh, why am I in this situation? Oh, this really sucks and be tired all day. This is going to mess up this thing I had planned tonight. I was going to work out. Now I don't feel like working out. I'm too tired to work out. I can't work out. And then now I'm going to get fat. You know, you do all this internal dialogue that just creates stress and more suffering for yourself as opposed to saying, well, here I am, I'm awake and I feel this certain way. And Okay, I'll, just, I'll deal with that and I'm going to go do my stuff. And that's, that was like a, like a big takeaway is just saying to myself, I'm feeling this certain way, but I don't need to, I don't need to especially do anything about it. I'm just going to be with this feeling until it goes away and it will eventually, it'll become something else. You can't feel one way forever, but it sucks. I, I feel your pain. What do you think caused it over the last couple of days? Oh, I know what caused it. I'm, you know, I'm, 
I'm being threatened by, uh, I'm being threatened with a lawsuit oh. that I've that I've discussed before. Yeah, and they won't relent. <clears throat> they are not. Uh, for rational. people for people who have have just tuned into the sh- to the show, this is their first episode. Maybe could you give them maybe like a one to three sentence rundown of what's or do you not want to revisit it? I don't blame you if you don't, but. Well, it's not that I wouldn't revisit it happily with all of my internet friends and yeah. explain everything and name the people and give their address, but <clears throat> they have specifically now mentioned not podcasting, but defamation in their legal documents, and I know that there are people that listen to this program who live in Normandy Park, and I, you know, they're... They're coming at me from all sides. It's um, <clears throat> it's a thing, Dan, that I that I've been struggling with a lot lately because for most of my life I was very comfortable with the with the standpoint I think most people have, which is I feel like I am the benchmark of sane and rational, mm-hmm. and. As people deviate from my worldview, as they go, as 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 I meet people in the world, and I meet people that have worldviews further and further from mine, yeah, I feel like those are the people that are wrong, and the people whose worldview dovetails with mine are the people that are right. And in personal relationships, I've always felt like I'm the benchmark of rational and calm, yeah, and people who are, uh who like bring in outside information that's not relevant to the problem. People that use emotional appeal, people that blackmail people that, you know, that all of that is emotional, um, illness, you know, like I'm the benchmark. Right. Right. And, and I look at the world and I see that most people do that. You know, most people say, well, I'm sane. And so, these conflicts that I'm having with other people are because everybody else is crazy, but you get to be a certain age or a certain amount of experience. And you go, now if I'm having the same problem over and over with multiple people, seems like the common denominator is me. (laughs) And if I'm the benchmark, that means one of two things, either as I suspect, everyone is crazy or maybe I'm the problem. Mm. And, you know, thus entereth a a difficult period in one's life where you go, well, uh, am I the problem? And if so, if I really look at it, I mean, there are some situations where you're like, oh, you know what? I'm being pretty stubborn there. I should, I should let it go, you know, or you know what? I should have, I should call them and apologize. And, And learning to do those things was, was hard for me and produced good results. The whole like, you know, I should just, this intractable fight that I'm in with this person, I should just call them. And, you know, and I would go, I don't want to call them. And I'd have all the reasons and I would go, just call them. Call them, then the problem's solved. And it's like, wow, that was really easy. So much better than five years of being in a feud with that person. But there, there are other things 
you know, relationships and, and it's even easy to, to go, to look at, at bad relationships and go, you know, that relationship was crazy. I felt really mistreated and it's very hard for me to understand what they were thinking and what they were getting at, Mm -hmm. but I know they were thinking something that they weren't just thinking it's the, uh, what every wise person says to someone who's being unwise. They say, you know, chances are that the person that you're worried about is not thinking about you at all. And putting yourself as this, at the center of every story or as the protagonist, you know, it's easy to feel in those relationships like this person's just out to get me. They spend all day trying to think of ways to torture me. And even when that person is the closest person to you, that's not true. They're just trying to, you know, they think they're doing the right thing. And right now I'm, in, I'm, I'm embroiled in this dispute with a neighbor. I've got the mother of one of my daughter's friends mad at me, you know, and, and she's a key in a, in a kind of social group that, the fact that she is mad at me now means that the whole social group is is thrown akimbo. Nobody can socialize with each other. It's all a big crazy thing. And I apologized <clears throat> and she accepted my apology, but my apology was not really accepted. And so I, I wrote again and said, I apologized. I don't get the sense that that was enough. So here I am apologizing again. And, and what I heard, I got no reply, but what I heard was that my second apology made it worse somehow. And how did it, wait, how did it make it worse? Uh, well, this is the thing. If I am the, if, if I tell you that story from the, from my position as the benchmark of what is sane and reasonable Oh, you you know, Dan, I could go for I could go for 45 minutes telling you the story about how I did a bunch of sane and reasonable things and this person because of the many <clears throat> challenges she faces in life has m- misunderstood both willfully and and as a result of her own stresses, who's going she's going through something that has nothing to do with me. She misread me. You know, and I always kind of I always put in little asterisks in all these stories about like, well, and I am kind of a little bit of an asshole lol. And then I bounce off of that. And, you know, I could tell the story from my perspective and it's very entertaining and I do believe it, but I'm trying to zoom out and say the, 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 the details of the story aren't relevant to the question why am I at the center of these imbroglios all the time that have a kind of common thread? I mean, and the thing is, it's still, it's a hundred percent possible that everybody in the world is crazy, Dan. I mean, I have emails. Yeah. I mean, you can't, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not after. Yes. You know, I mean, that's a fact. I have emails from the from the people that are in the legal dispute with me and from this mom and from 
people on the internet and people I used to host a podcast with. I have emails that if you published them, I think the whole world would go, wow, that sounds crazy. But you know that the world also does things where they read things and go, huh, well, this sounds a little funny, but that sounds like they have a point. And, and from, you know, from where I'm sitting, I mean, I feel besieged right now by, by people and situations that, um, that I, I can't understand how I'm, how I'm there, you know, like mm. everything that's happened in the last year and a half at, at a, at a very basic place, I don't understand how it came to this, you know, how I bought this house. I had it surveyed by a professional surveyor. Mm -hmm. I got to know my neighbors and was nice to them. I explained that I had had the property surveyed and that there were places where the old boundary line had clearly been lost mm. and people had had done things, had put things across the line and now I had established it again and I was going to, you know, I was going to improve my property. I hope not to inconvenience them, you know, and, and all of that just sounds as reasonable as a person could be. Oh, yeah. Now I'm in a situation where um, I'm fighting a legal battle over ownership of property I paid for because, because they are asserting that it belongs to them. Not, and, and, and the law somewhat supports their efforts. But, but and, and I can accept that. You know, I can even accept it. The problem is that they want more. They're trying to take now a quarter of my property. Hmm. And the and this mom that I'm in a dispute with will not be satisfied until I, until I have sat in a chair in front of her and she has lectured me for two hours on contemporary politics and I'm unwilling to do it. I won't, I'm 53 and I'm not going to sit in a hard chair in front of somebody and have them lecture me because they felt insulted at a birthday party at a child's birthday party. And I'm, and I'm giving these strange thumbnail sketches because for the, maybe the first time I'm conscious, not, it's not that I'm not, I haven't always been conscious that people listen to these shows and, that I speak out of turn or I speak too candidly. And then later on I hear, you know, I, I have some friends from Anchorage. I told a story. I think I, I think I mentioned this. I told a story about our parents and some mutual friend of ours listened to the show and called up my old friends and said, he's talking about your dad. And, and then they listened to the show and they didn't like how I'd talked about their dad. Hmm. And, and, you know, the brother who was the friend of mine is like, it's whatever, it's no problem. But then their dad got sick mm. and then died. Oh. And this was the thing that was in their mind while their dad was dying, that I'm on a podcast talking about their business deals in Anchorage in the 80s. And they're mad. They're like mad. And, and, I, and I, that part of me that's like, well, I was just 
just talking about history, kind of, you know, like these were real people. These are our friends, but it's also, it's history. It's the history of our time. And I'm not trying to profit off of gossip about your parents from 40 years ago. I, uh, you know, I work without notes, but I'm, I sound really garbled right now, not because my head is garbled, but because I don't know. I'm uh, because telling the stories of these things is easy for me. I could tell you the story of this mom. I could tell you the story of these people behind me. I could tell you this, all the stories and it would be, it would sound true. It would sound right and true. And I would believe it. And I know there are people that listen to the programs that are that are more dubious or skeptical about me as the protagonist in every story. Mm. But but you know well, everyone's I, the protagonist of their own stories, right? Well, I know, but I don't want to just be like I've never been just trying to to make myself into a comic book hero like my the the i don't think if you looked it's a it's the funny thing about storytelling right at the end of a lot of the stories that we tell on these shows i'm the goat not the hero every time right a lot of the stories are about mistakes i've made situations i've gotten in that sucked but by telling all these stories where i'm the goat or the or the and I don't mean greatest of all time. I mean the old old version of goat, the loser. Um, that there's a I, I, I've built I've built up this this uh, costume around a character that. Like I, I said to my daughter's mother the other night, like I, I did that thing where I, sh- sh- you know, shrugged off some situation where I was like, well, you know, you know me, I'm kind of an asshole. And she said, hey, sometimes you act like an asshole, but you're not an asshole. And there's a, there's a massive difference. People react to you when you act like an asshole, but you're not an asshole. And I, I, and I've been, <clears throat> I've been using that I'm an asshole thing for so long. <clears throat> I wasn't, I wasn't clear what distinction she was trying to make. Like, I'm still not sure what that means. Well, and, and, and it's, and it sounds like a compliment, but but if I'm not an asshole, um, uh, are you kind of saying that it's like it's possible that you've done things that were an asshole thing to do, but that doesn't you're saying that doesn't categorize you as a, as a human being in, into that? Like, and, well, no, and you're uh, kind of saying it in a bigger sense that maybe nobody is. What like she's completely. What she's saying is that when, you know, when there are a group of people standing around and somebody says, I've got a boo-boo, 
and everybody, are, you know, and the four people go around the circle going, oh, you got a boo-boo. And then it comes to me and I go, well, boo-boos, kind of the, kind of, it's just kind of the stuff of life. Or I go, suck it up, fuzzball, or whatever it is I say. What she's, what my daughter's mother is saying is that that's, that, that, uh, that I don't not have compassion for them or, you know, I'm not actually callous about their feelings. I just kind of act like an asshole or perform like one. But that, that, that doesn't, that's not the same as being one. And she says a lot of times people mistake that behavior for actually being, and I think these days there being so little subtlety and so little subtext allowed that a lot of people just assume that, that I'm earnest in not caring about their boo-boo. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not talking about on the internet. I'm talking about real life, real life people. You know, the, the, the next door neighbor wrote me a letter about how his dad ran over his dog in his driveway Ugh. and uh, in 1989 and they buried the dog in the forest and that's one of the reasons that they want that that's one of the claims they're exerting over you know they 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 say that having buried that dog there in the 80s that they that gives them an ownership claim over the land you know this overgrown forest that they hadn't been in since 89 but they they pushed their way back into the bushes one time and buried their dead dog that their dad ran over. Like, what a crazy email. But that there's maybe some expectation that I responded like, oh my God, I'm so sorry about your dog. Oh, wow. We should find the grave and and put a marker there. And, you know, my reaction is like, (laughs) wow. If I owned every plot of land where I buried a dead pet, shit. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'd be Andrew Carnegie. Like, I got dead pets buried all over the West. <laughs> yeah. And that's not what that person's looking for, and they, can, and they have no other alternative but to come away from it thinking that I'm a monster mm-hmm. because I didn't respond to their... To their uh, emotional appeal, an emotional appeal that I felt was uh, ec- uh, not genuine. I mean, I, I, you know, crazy, ex- exploitative. But again, I'm. It's so easy for me. I've spent so much time training my brain to survey situations, establish myself as the benchmark, and then measure how much people are deviating from my mean and then you know like assign them credibility based on how far from benchmark conditions they are and it, it took me a long time to understand and acknowledge emotional intelligence as a way as a, a as like a, a different metric and to say, okay, I I will uh, I will try and recalibrate how I measure people's intelligence to include the idea of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. 
I can't carry around nine yardsticks everywhere I go, but I, I do try to put together a composite picture of people and go, oh, this person has a lot of emotional intelligence, but it's, you know, it's not exclusive of rational intelligence. And so I'm willing to go on a journey with them. I may have that too, for all I know. But somebody said something to me the other day. Uh, they referred to, they were talking about someone and they said, well, that person has their own emotional facts. And we both looked at each other and I said, emotional facts. And they said, emotional facts. Emotional facts. And we, and we, what, is we, that, what exactly does that mean, emotional? Well, it was, facts. we have this powerful moment as we both considered the term emotional facts. Yeah. Which was new, it was, that was a new coinage from where I was standing. But the idea of thought technology explained a lot that there are a lot of people nowadays who have emotional facts, which is in this family of sort of Donald Trump uh, truthiness or, or uh, what, what were the, I mean, alter, alternate facts, right? That are, that are not facts. Mm -hmm. There are, there are facts. And then I guess it, you can call the things that aren't facts alternate facts, but that's that's not what they are. And emotional facts seems to be seems to be something that a lot of people are transacting now. Like, and and it boils down to like this is my truth kind of thinking, right? Like, I'm not looking for the truth because I either don't believe there is such a thing as a tr the truth or a truth, mm -hmm. or more likely, the truth, a truth, I feel always puts me at a disadvantage for a variety of reasons. I'm always on the wrong side of the truth, and so I no longer want to be governed by it. I have a different truth. And I, I, you hear it a lot now. People say it with pride, like it's a form of um, self-care, or it's a, it's a like a liberation theology almost. Like I, you know, your truth, the your truth that you're calling the truth is a truth that has produced all these ills in the world, and I don't like that. I don't like those ills. And so I no longer accept that that the, that is the truth. I think it is your truth. It's a and truth. There's, there's a lot, or a truth. A truth. There's a lot of there's a lot of good scholarship behind that. Initially, you know, the concept that the dominant class creates the conditions of the world and then calls it the truth. And if you line up against the dominant class and its conditions, um, you're, you get called a liar. But the 
you know, the whole postmodern experience or experiment of having diverse truths. Uh, I, I, for a long time, since the 90s, have felt like that virus got out of the lab to, to make a Dan Benjamin reference. <laughs> that, that cat got out of the bag. Uh-huh. Um, and no one can get it, but you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And if there's maybe one thing that has ruined the world, in my estimation, it is the idea that we, that in order to liberate ourselves from the dominant theology, we introduced into the world a fractal, uh, like a, like a, a shattering of what truth is. It was we always had alternate versions of reality, but we fought to establish their legitimacy, not just took it over here and planted a flag and said, this is my campground, and over here, this is the truth, and you can live over there in your campground. I mean, we share a world. And nobody is interested in a shared truth anymore, and I, I, that's... That's my like generation X guy clinging to a, a to a inner tube with a hole in it and shouting help over the dark waves feeling like that dream sequence in Escape to Witch Mountain oh, right but emotional facts was just a new so such a simple way of phrasing it it, it 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 rang in my head like a bell because when you're dealing with people now and when you're in disputes with them, you, you kind of have an obligation to figure out whether you're dealing with somebody who is trying to figure out what the facts are or whether you're dealing with somebody who has their own emotional facts. Right. And their facts are, like Mike Squires used to say, emotions are real, but... I always would say to him, but are they true? Like emotions are real, yes, but but are emotions true? Because you can do terrible things under the under the influence of an emotion that's real that later on you wish you hadn't done because it turns out the emotion wasn't true. And And I'm in these disputes with people who have who who are basing it on emotional facts, but they have the same they use the same language I do, right? They also have email. And they can put emotional facts into an email. And if they're good enough writers, it sounds like a reasonable proposition. Like, oh, this is this this is an email just like the email I got from Delta Airlines. They all live in the same world of of typewritten communication. But, you know, and Delta Airlines also has emotional facts because they put me in a middle seat <laughs> and they're telling me they're, that the flights are sold out and there are no other seats. But I can look on their app and see that there are, that there are some seats that are blocked off with X's that aren't chosen. They're not taken but they have X's on them and you can't select them. 
And when I called out the airlines and say, I can't sit in a middle seat if it's at all, if there's anything I can do, how do I get one of those blocked off seats? And in, and Delta's emotional facts are that those seats are not available. They're not taken, nor are they available. And that feels as much an, that feels like as much an emotional attack as the worst girlfriend I ever had. Hmm. These are not taken, nor are they available. I cannot explain any further. They're special. They're something. They're there. You can see them, but they're ghosted. Right. And it feel it feels like everywhere I look in life, there are like three aisle seats that are that are ghosted. And the person and the and the person I'm talking to is the customer service agent that tells me that uh, they're afraid they can't help me. So where does that leave you? You know, I'm, I'm already prone to arguing with myself and taking the antagonist's side in a, in a dispute in my own head. Right? I'm just walking down the street. A voice in my head goes, boy, you really fucked that up. Mm-hmm. And I go, what? They're like, well, you just walked past that person and they looked at you and you looked at them and they then they didn't like how you looked at them. You blew it. And I go, why? What, what? I was just walking down the street. I didn't do anything. And then I, the, the observer, goes, well, he's got a point. Like I'm already doing that to myself all the time, siding with the, with the bully over the, over the innocent self. But I'm also trying to do better and, and, you know, and not just swagger through life with that mentality, that, that terrible mentality of like, well, you either get it or you don't. You either like me or you don't. And there, there are plenty of people in my life that say, look, not, you can't be a friend to everybody. Not everybody's going to like you. There's power in just saying you like me or you don't. And I go, yeah, and, I, and when I see somebody who really lives that way, who's like, well, some people don't like me, don't care. Like, I admire it, I guess, kind of, but I think it's a bad look on me. It's too easy for me to say, well, you either like it or you don't. And, and I feel like you end up being, if you're me, you end up being like a, you know, a small town sheriff in a way. Like, it. it it's um i don't want to i don't want people to have to pick sides to to be my friend i don't want to be one side of a dispute where people are like well i, I really like john i want to be over there with him but in this case you know i think he's wrong mm-hmm. like i i'm i have always believed that there was eventually a truth not one from God, but one that we could agree upon, that we could settle upon. 
because there's a lot of evidence for that. History is full of evidence of people going, all right, well, why don't we settle on this? And everybody goes, meh, that works. And, and bridges are built. Sure. And I believe in it. And, and, and I've always wanted to be an agent of it. And I don't think you can be an agent of finding truth if you are like, well, some people like me and some people don't. That's not what a, that's not what somebody that's looking for truth says. It's something that someone looking for comfort or a place in the world or call you know like their own their own little forty acres and a mule. But like somehow looking for truth, thinking I'm looking for truth, trying to figure out if I'm the bad guy, I end up in all these situations where it's like, why am I, why am I fighting with you? I just thought, you know, I, I've got the paper right here that says that that goes from here to there. And they're like, well, that's not my emotional truth. And I'm like, now we're in, now we're in a war. And, and I also don't want to be a crusader. You know, right. I don't, I'm, I'm, I was reading an article. You know, they've been doing studies on twins for decades. Well, they've been doing studies on twins as long as they've been doing studies. But yeah. one of the really popular things to study with separated twins is the, the whole family of morality. Is morality heritable? Do separated twins share a moral code and and does that then extend to politics you know are you are you ethically and politically kind of predetermined by your genes hmm. in as much as we are predetermined in any way by our genes you know we can always we can always assert ourselves beyond our genes but there are a lot of studies suggesting that that there's a heritable component to morality and to justice and people that have that are comfortable with moral ambiguity and people that are not like that's an that's an inheritable trait right and i'm very comfortable with moral ambiguity and my daughter is not mhm and in talking to her about it and trying to get to know her and talking to my other relatives, I realize, oh, it, I know the relatives, I know where she got it. Like her mother is very easygoing, but scratch the surface and she has a very uh, strict code. And my mom does, you know, it's a, it's a it's a thing and my daughter did not learn it right she had it she had it before she could talk and i always wonder i marveled at it and i realized my dad was very comfortable with moral ambiguity although he was a you know he was he spent his life fighting for the underdog he also knew that there were a lot of stories in the naked city 
And it's a, you know, it's a trick. It's a trick to be very comfortable with moral ambiguity and also believe that, that you're working together to seek truth because most people equate truth with moral rigidity. This is true and this is false. This is so and this is not. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I think that in order to find an agreeable truth, an agreed-upon truth, you've got to bring moral flexibility to the question. And these just are not those times. And I'm not, again, I'm not even talking about politics and online. I'm talking about the way I, that the way I interact with my neighbors and my and friends even. But isn't there sort of the expectation that people are coming to the party with kind of the same goal as you, and clearly they don't have the same goal? I don't know if I have any expectation that anyone has any (laughs) common goal anymore. Right. Right. The goal is not one that's, that's held in common. The goal now is, um, the, the personal is political all politics are personal. And so every single question, every, every single issue is, um, you know, both explodes out into the widest possible cultural reach and then collapses back in to a hot black, like mega gravity in each person's soul. Where it's like, hey, can you pass the salt? And they're just like, uh, and they look at you and go, that's, you know, you asking me for the salt is assault. <laughs> you go, <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what, a, what, a, what did I, huh? And I, and I see it everywhere. And it's not, it's not just people that you would deride as either snowflakes right. or, you know, it's not, it's, it's like, Everybody feels under siege and there there's a, a mass media culture that's providing everybody with a, with their own individual binder of reasons to feel personally affronted and you can pick and choose. It doesn't matter what your politics are, what your religion is, what your history is. You can find 50 things online that you can collate together and say, these are my things that I'm upset about and I'm going to carry this with me. And every day, every person I meet, I'm going to, I'm going to scan them across the, this benchmark. It's not a benchmark of, of my own, of, uh, it's not a benchmark of sanity. It's not a benchmark of truth or of cooperation. It's a benchmark of conflict and Everyone's a moral absolutist. 